As you stand, we're standing to hear the reading of God's Word. If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians 2, 19 through 30. We're reading Philippians 2, 19 through 30. If you have a need a pew Bible there in front of you, it's page 1,165. As we stand to hear God's Word, we're standing as servants who are quick to hear, quick to obey from the heart. For as we read the Bible, God is speaking directly to us. Philippians 2, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier in your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come and we are humbled again that we can enter into your presence by the blood of your Son, with our sins forgiven past, present, and future, and not only forgiven, but declared righteous in him, that we can approach boldly to hear your word, to bring our anxieties, our needs, our fears, our longings, and know, Lord, that you are not simply a mighty God, You are also a heavenly father. And so we pray that by your spirit you would apply the word that we are to hear preached now and that we would not simply be hearers of your word, Lord, but we would be doers, that we would leave here with hearts burning with a desire, having met and encountered you through your son, by your spirit, and in your word. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, from time to time, we all need a reality check in life. One such time came several years ago for U.S. Airways when a 300-pound pig, the kind you might see at a state fair, was allowed to travel on a six-hour flight from Philadelphia to Seattle. And he didn't ride coach either. 
two passengers actually convinced the airline representative that the pig needed to fly with them because it was a, quote, therapeutic companion pet, sort of like the seeing eye dog. They agreed, and the pig was permitted to sit with them in first-class cabin of the plane. Passengers described the 300-pound pig as enormous, angry, and noisy. He took up three seats near the front of the plane, where the attendants reportedly had difficulty strapping him in. You think? The pig became restless after takeoff and sauntered through the airplane. One passenger said he kept oinking, rubbing his nose on people's legs and at their food trays, trying to get them to give him food. As the plane began landing, the article goes on and reports the massive pig panicked and started running up and down the aisles, squealing as he ran through the airplane. Some passengers panicked as well, standing on their seats and screaming. It was absolute pandemonium. It took four flight attendants to get the pig out of the airplane, and then it escaped upon reaching the terminal, but was later recaptured. When asked to provide some sort of comment or explanation, U.S. Airways responded, Well, we can confirm that the pig traveled on our airline. And we can confirm that this has never happened before, and we can confirm that this will never happen again. I should hope not. What a crazy story. What a plane ride. What a reality check for those people in U.S. Airways. And so the next time you're not too happy with the person sitting next to you on a plane, just remember it could be a lot worse. You could be riding on a plane with a 300-pound pig. And so from time to time, We all need a reality check to sort of readjust our perspectives, to refocus our lives, especially when it comes to joy in the journey. And now is a good time for that. Now is a good time for us as a church family to do a reality check here in our series through the book of Philippians before we turn the page to chapter 3 next Sunday. For two chapters, we have been hearing, we have been learning about join the journey from the Apostle Paul. Join the journey was Paul's reality, even though he's in a Roman prison awaiting trial. As we have seen, the language of joy, it permeates this letter occurring some 16 times. And, and so when Paul writes this letter, he does so to help us see that joy in the journey can be your reality in life. And so he says, I rejoice, so you rejoice. And here's what Paul's been telling us and showing us in these first 60 verses. It's this right here. Join the journey is experienced most fully when we live Christ-centered and gospel-driven lives. Now, we have a country where people are pursuing happiness at all costs and by any means possible. The problem is nobody is finding it. Two-thirds of Americans claim to be unhappy. Why? Because real happiness, true joy, is not found by direct pursuit. It's a byproduct of pursuing Christ in living out his gospel mission. This is what Paul's been telling us. We see this going back to chapter 1 and verses 12 through 14 where he says, I want you to know, brothers... That what has happened to me and what's happened to Paul 
He's, he's, he's under house arrest. He's sitting in a Roman prison. And he says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold now to speak the word without fear. And Paul is rejoicing in this. And so we see his joy is not dependent upon his circumstances, but rather on his Lord. Although Paul's been in prison for almost four years now, he still rejoices. Why? Because Christ is being proclaimed. In fact, he reminds us of this in verse 18 of chapter 1 when he says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And even if he should be sentenced to death for proclaiming Jesus, he would still rejoice. Why? Because from Paul's perspective, in Philippians 1.21, to live is what? It's Christ, and to die is gain. And so as long as you live for yourself, as long as you try to find happiness for yourself, you will never find it. In fact, you will be miserable. You will be hard to live with. It's only when you turn from yourself and turn to Jesus Christ, who takes over your life, and you live for Him, that you begin to find true joy, that you begin to experience joy in the journey. You see, the more you do as you please, the less you will be pleased with what you do. But when you say, forget me, I want to live for Jesus, the byproduct of that is joy. This is why Paul exhorts us now in Chapter 1, verse 27. Only, only, the one thing, Paul says, to focus on your life. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So joy in the journey is Paul's reality here. And the question is, is it your reality? And I don't mean just a moment of joy is if that's your reality. Moments of joy. Because something good happened to you. You know, you caught three lights in a row green. Oh, yeah, I'm excited about that. I'm in a moment of joy. It's not what we're talking about. But rather, does joy mark your life? Does joy characterize your life? And Paul is saying, listen, this is my reality, and it can now be your reality. When you live Christ-centered and gospel-driven lives, but now comes the reality check. Notice it. Join the journey does not mean the absence of struggles, troubles, and even trials in the journey. That's the reality check. Paul makes this crystal clear. He wants us to understand That the kind of joy that he has in his life, the kind of joy that he wants you to have in your life, does not mean the absence of struggles, troubles, and even trials in life. Let's be honest. If we're not careful, we can easily hold up Paul as the supreme saint who never had any struggles in life. 
After all, he's the Apostle Paul. He's the ultimate missionary who traveled on no less than three different missionaries, proclaiming the gospel and planting numerous churches and then writing 13 books in the New Testament. And so it's rather easy to put this man up on a pedestal and to think that here is the perfect saint who had no real struggles in his life. But we see here that Paul struggled with anxiety in a life of faith. He struggled with sorrow in a life of joy. And he struggled with weakness in a life of power. Paul shows us this reality check, if you will, from his own life. And in doing so, he gives us now the opportunity to kind of take a pause, to stop here before we turn the page to chapter 3 and do our own reality check. To go before the Lord and say, God, check me out here. Where am I at in my own journey when it comes to joy? Am I a joyless Christian or does joy mark my life? So here's three questions for you to answer right out of Paul's own life, right out of his own testimony here in Philippians. First question is this, do you struggle with anxiety in a life of faith? You see, Paul had hoped to send Timothy to the church of Philippi. He, he tells us that. That was his desire. That was his wish. That was his hope. But why? Well, notice why here in verse 19 of chapter 2. He says, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon. And then notice why. So that I too may be cheered by news of you. So the reason that Paul hoped to send Timothy to Philippi is because he himself wants to be cheered up when he receives news regarding the spiritual condition of the church at Philippi. And although Paul assumes that the church will be encouraged by Timothy's report regarding how God is using his situation in prison to advance the gospel, notice the emphasis here. Paul is emphasizing the potential impact that Timothy's report regarding the church will have on his own spiritual well-being, his own emotional sense of well-being, that it might cheer him up. And so what we see here is a bit of vulnerability in the Apostle Paul. He's anxious. You say, what's he anxious about? He's anxious about the spiritual condition of the church at Philippi. He's heard rumblings of their disunity. Not everything's going well. And he wants to hear a report from them. And this shouldn't be surprising. Paul loved this church. They were dear to his heart. In fact, he tells us in chapter 1, I hold you in my heart. How long, how I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And so as a result, Paul hitched his emotions to the ups and downs of the church. Now, certainly, Paul's heart was filled with joy. He's already told us that all through chapter 1. But listen to me. It is not an unclouded joy. It's a joy filled with reality. Yes, the ministry brought new joys to Paul, but with those joys were also days of anxiety. This isn't the first time Paul talks about this. You go to... 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, and he writes there, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Likewise, he wrote in 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, 
I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. And so understand something here. Paul's heart, it rose and it fell with the people in these churches that he planted. His greatest pains were over his people. His greatest joys were over their spiritual progress in a life of faith, in their Christian life. And in here in Philippians, Paul anticipated that the news from the Philippians would do what? Would cheer his heart and put to rest his anxiety over their spiritual condition. Now, we as parents, we understand this more than any. Oh, do we understand this. We get this if you're a parent. We understand this kind of anxiety. We can identify with Paul when it comes to our own anxious hearts over the spiritual condition of our own kids. I mean, who here knows for sure that your kids are going to be with you in heaven? I certainly don't, not 100%. And so what do we do? We, we pray for them. We, we teach them. We try to disciple them. And we plead with them and tell them, listen, you can't go to heaven on my faith. You must be born again. You must believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you must receive by faith Jesus Christ as your own Savior and Lord. And only time will tell if their profession of faith is genuine. We get that. And Paul does too. Paul struggled with anxiety over the spiritual health of the believers in this Philippian church. And added, get this, and added to that anxiety was the uncertainty of his own life. Notice what Paul writes. Notice what he confesses in verse 23 and 24. He says, I hope, therefore, to send Timothy just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Now, can you imagine the implication of what Paul is saying here. Just put yourself in Paul's shoes here for a moment. Here's the greatest apostle of all time, and he doesn't have a clue how things are going to turn out for his own life. Here he is. He's under house arrest. He's in a Roman prison. He has no idea about the outcome of his trial. He is in waiting. It is uncertain. He doesn't know if he's going to be executed or if he's going to be set free. And so much of life is dealing with uncertainties, is it not? Well, we just don't know. We're waiting. We're waiting on God to lay out his sovereign plans for us, to see what happens. And so talk about uncertainty, and yet, yet don't miss this, Paul overcomes his anxious heart with complete trust in the Lord. And so we here, hopefully, as believers in Christ, we trust in the Lord, and we rest in his sovereign guarantee that according to Romans 8.28, God is able to cause all things to work together, first for his glory and for our good. You say, well, what is our good? Well, the very next verse actually clarifies that. And when Paul says that you might be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. 
Alan Redpath, who was the former pastor of Moody Church, once wrote, there is nothing, no circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until it has gone past the inspection and approval of God. And if it has come that far to get to me, it has come with a great purpose, for it has come from the throne of God. Yes, there is no doubt. Paul struggled with anxiety. Just as we do, right? Anybody here not? If you, if you confess to that, man, you're not real. We all do. We all live with uncertainties in our life. Just like Paul. But notice here. He overcame this, he dealt with this, he struggled with it, and he did so in a life of faith. In fact, Paul later on, we'll get to this in our series, in chapter 4, you know this verse. Verse 8, he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus And so, like Paul, we are going to struggle with anxiety, even uncertainty in the journey. But we do so in a life of faith, trusting God with people and circumstances that we are anxious over and we aren't certain about. So that's the first reality, Chuck. Like Paul, do you struggle with anxiety, but do you do so in a life of faith, trusting God? As sovereign overall. The second reality check is do you, number two, struggle with sorrow in a life of joy? Do you struggle with sorrow in a life of joy? And here again, we get a glimpse into the heart of Paul when he talks about his sorrow over Epaphroditus almost dying. Notice what he says. Here's his. His admission in verse 27, he says, Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Do you realize you could actually paraphrase that last phrase? You could translate it this way. So that I would not have wave upon wave of grief. You ever been to the ocean, especially the Atlantic or Pacific side, Pacific, the Pacific side of the ocean? You stand in those waves, and what, they never stop, do they? Do they ever stop? From no, they never stop. They keep coming, wave after wave after wave, never stopping. That's how Paul is describing his sorrow right here. Sorrow upon sorrow, wave upon wave of grief. And I just want to say thank you, Paul, for writing with such transparency, with such reality here. Paul is a servant of the Lord. He's serving with gospel joy, and yet he characterizes himself as a person who has to cope with sorrow. In fact, the same Paul who declared, rejoice in the Lord always, now tells us that he was almost overwhelmed with sorrow upon sorrow and wave upon wave of grief. 
And he goes on to say in verse 28, I am the more eager to send him, him being Epaphroditus, therefore, that you, the Philippian church, may rejoice at seeing him again, in that I, Paul says, may be less anxious, which I think more accurately you could translate as less sorrow. Isn't that interesting? What Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, I'm sending Epaphroditus back to you so that I won't have any sorrows at all. But only that I will have less sorrow. And so Paul does not expect to be freed from all sorrow in this earthly life. But rather, he will have less sorrow to cope with. You might be wondering, well, what caused all the sorrow in Paul's life? Well, we know one sorrow for sure refers to the death of Epaphroditus, which Paul was spared from that sorrow when God mercifully intervened and healed Epaphroditus from his illness. But what might some of Paul's other sorrows be were probably caused by, one, his imprisonment. He's under house arrest. Probably his adversaries. Those that were hostile to him, hostile to Christ and the gospel. We also know, he admits this in chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, he had had people that were his rivals. They were jealous of him, preaching Christ out of envy. All these things compounded and were causes of sorrow in his heart. And so whatever the reason for his sorrows may be, Paul reveals that he struggled with sorrows in a life of joy. You say, well, man, that seems like an oxymoron. How can that even be? How can you have sorrow and still have joy in the journey? That's a big question, isn't it? I mean, is it possible to just sail blissfully through this world, never being touched by grief and sorrow, troubles and trials? Is that even realistic? Well, of course not. After all, was not Jesus a... Man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And so get this, rejoicing in the Lord always, it does not mean denying the reality of sorrow in a life of joy. Paul's omission of sorrow here is not a confession of sin. Listen, the emotion of sorrow is God-given. It is Christ-like emotion, especially in the face of death. And so Paul's joy in the journey does not include the removal of all sorrow in his journey. And if that is your expectation, then you definitely need a reality check. You need to stop and go before the Lord. Before his word, the check engine light is on in your heart. But when we fix our eyes on Jesus, when we focus on the Lord's presence in our lives, listen, that's what gives us the ability to rejoice in the midst of sorrow and grief. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul speaks of himself as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. He puts it in the same sentence, the same phrase. He is sorrowful, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So as a Christian, it's possible, because of Christ, to be sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. 
Listen, we don't have an ostrich joy where we just stick our heads in the sand hoping to avoid reality. We have a gospel joy that faces the realities of sorrow and suffering in this world and is yet still able to rejoice anyway. You say, why? How? Because of what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. That's why and that's how. And so what we are seeing here in Paul's life is that earthly sorrow is not inconsistent with gospel joy. And that's so important for us to understand. Again, your experience of gospel joy does not mean that the Christian life is one of uninterrupted bliss and peace and happiness. It doesn't mean that we don't face anxieties and uncertainties, disappointments and sorrows and trials. Yes, there is coming a day. There will be a day when there will be no more sorrow upon sorrows. But that's after Jesus comes. But until that day, listen, Paul is exhorting us here to live with joy in the journey now, even though there are still days of anxieties and uncertainties, disappointments and sorrows in this earthly life of ours reality check and this is very important for us because the reality is we will disappoint one another and the reality is we will be disappointed by one another we will let people down we will be disappointed we will feel the sting even of betrayal We will experience the grief of certain events that happen in our lives and don't happen in our lives. And we will experience the sorrow of death when people we love die. And yet all of that, Paul is telling us here, he's reminding us here, is not a barrier. It is not an impediment to a life of joy in the journey when you fix your eyes on Jesus and focus on what we have in him. The last reality check from Paul's life is this, number three. Do you struggle with weakness in a life of power? Do you realize that few people have ever had as a powerful impact on history as the Apostle Paul? Think of all the people who came to Jesus Christ through the churches that Paul planted on his missionary journeys. How many millions of people do you think have been saved through just his letter to the Romans? How many millions of people have been impacted by his letters of Ephesians, Galatians, and this letter of Philippians that's still impacting us here today? And so what a powerful life in terms of Paul's impact for Christ. And yet here in Philippians 2, we see a man of great weakness in dependency. He's dependent on the Philippians to do what? To send him money so that he can survive in prison. He is dependent on Timothy and Epaphroditus to minister to his personal needs. And yes, ultimately he's dependent on God for the outcome of his trial and ultimately his life. Paul is a picture of dependency and weakness. And you know what? In the end, that is his greatest strength. Paul was a ladder-climbing Pharisee. 
He was, an, he was influential in the religious circles of his days before he came to Christ. And then when he came to Christ, God taught Paul to be nothing in humility and to live in interdependence with one another and ultimately dependence on God. Paul is showing us here that the Christian life is meant to be lived in community with other Christians. God did not intend for us to go through the Christian life alone. God intended for us to depend on one another and to minister to one another as we journey through this world. Paul is describing for us here in Philippians 2 how he himself needed Timothy and Epaphroditus. As Paul writes about Timothy and Epaphroditus, he's basically saying, listen, I needed those men. I needed their ministry. I couldn't have made it without their ministry. And that's no small thing because if Paul needed Timothy and Epaphroditus to minister to him. How much more then do we here need to minister to one another and to be ministered to by one another? And yes, we know. We know that Paul was ultimately, he ultimately relied on God in his weakness. He tells us this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, where he writes, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles that we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Well, that's reality, ain't it? Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Woohoo! And so we see in Paul here a life of weakness in the middle of a life of power. Total dependence on God. Teaching him every day in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, that my grace is sufficient for you. My power, God says, is made perfect in weakness. This is Paul's reality check. And what a reality check it is. Joy in the journey. It does not mean the absence of struggles and troubles and trials in the journey. It means that God's grace is sufficient in the journey. And therefore, joy is still a reality in the journey. The Apostle Paul is writing from prison... And he says, I rejoice, so you rejoice. He is facing struggles and troubles and trials, and yet he sees with uncommon clarity. Paul saying, everything has been ripped away from me, and what I've got left, I'm seeking my teeth into, and I'm living with joy. I don't know about you, but it's easy to live with joy when you're on vacation relaxing on a beach. It is a whole lot harder to live with joy when you're sitting in prison. But Paul has tapped into this secret. He has found something that allowed the scales of his life to tip from sorrow to joy. He has found something that has allowed the weight of the gospel here to hit his life in such a way that it absolutely transformed him. Here's the Apostle Paul's reality. And it can be your reality. The weight, notice it. The weight of earthly struggles, it cannot diminish the power of gospel joy when we live Christ-centered and gospel-driven lives. 
That's Paul's reality. He wants that to be your reality. A.W. Tozier once said, the people of God ought to be the happiest people in all the world. People should be coming to us constantly and asking the source of our joy and delight. And the reason is because we are demonstrating joy in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of difficulty and struggles and trials. That is a huge testimony in this world today. You're going, perhaps you're sitting there now, you're saying, listen, Bruce, I've got stuff going on in my life that you don't know about, and it has been a hard, hard, hard season in my life. Even now, it is painfully difficult. I understand that. And more importantly, God understands, and he understands that oftentimes the joy of the gospel, it is mixed with the reality of some really difficult and painful things that we face in life, but it is mixed, it's not absence. And so I just want to encourage you to push into what Paul has found in Jesus Christ. He's telling us that that the world, what the world gives in the form of griefs and sorrow, the form of pain and hurt, it cannot outweigh the source of our joy. Because that joy is distinctly linked to what Jesus has done for you 2,000 years ago on the cross and through his resurrection. And as we come to the Lord's table, as we participate in communion, listen, it is an opportunity for us to reflect on that reality. To remember the reality of Christ's sacrifice for us that makes joy in the journey possible even in the midst of our struggles and troubles and trials. Isaiah 53 says, I already quoted it to you, speaking of Jesus, he was despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And then I love what the writer of Hebrews 12.2 says, looking to Jesus, that's us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is the Jesus we celebrate. That is the Jesus we look to. That is the Jesus that is the source of our joy, even in the midst of struggles, troubles, and trials. And if Jesus is your Savior, if he is your king, then joy in the journey is your reality. Or it can be. And it's only because of the reality of his sacrifice on the cross and the resurrection from the grave that we have the hope of joy in the journey. So, let us now come and give thanks as we take the Lord's Supper. Let us check our reality to make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord and even with one another. And so let's bow our heads for a time of reflection and prayer. And before we take the Lord's Supper as a As a body, I encourage you to use this moment to reflect on your own heart for any sin that still needs to be confessed and forgiven. To offer a prayer of thanksgiving for what Christ did for you with his death and resurrection. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for your saving grace and the gift of eternal life in your Son, Jesus Christ.
and that he is our joy in the journey. Help us to see that in all our pleasures, Jesus is better, and in all our suffering, Jesus is enough. And now as we come to your table to drink the juice and to eat the bread, may we be reminded again of the infinite worth of your Son, and may we be motivated to rejoice in Christ, depend on Christ, and magnify Christ in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.